Hi folks, welcome to another Book Club of the Lotus Eaters. I'm joined by Connor, and today we're going to be talking about Caitlin Moran's What About Men. Um, I picked this book up when I went to America recently. Uh, I was about to get on the plane, and I was in the WH Smiths, and I thought, oh look, there's a book that I really won't enjoy reading, and I'll, that, that, I had a nine hour flight, so I thought this will uh, tide me over for the nine hours. It took me three hours to read. Um, it's not a difficult book to read. Um, and I found it mildly frustrating because of Moran's general sense of lack of self, lack of sense of self-awareness uh, throughout the entire thing, which I found very frustrating because she seems to be honestly trying to understand what the problem with men is, but fails to do any kind of self-critique or make a judgment about feminism that is negative about feminism. And so she's constantly like, well, why don't men have this? Why don't men have that? And almost all of these things can be laid at the feet of feminism, taking these things away from men. Um, there are two readings of this book that I would go away with. And I'm actually inclined to fall more on the charitable one, but oh, not yeah. for very charitable reasons. <laughs> There is something the postmodernists get right, and yeah. that is that standpoint epistemology is very important. It is from which paradigm, from which position are you making an argument? And if you're going to make an argument that men have it rough, one, don't do it in such a sardonic tone that everything drips with irreverence to the point of where it feels irrelevant. Yeah. And two, this is something that lots of progressive writers, newspaper outlets, etc., are doing at the moment. They're allowing women to define masculinity and its solutions. If yes. you are not in the position to be embodied, embedded in masculine discourse and existing as a man, personing while male, if you haven't firsthand experienced the kinds of systemic disadvantages which we constantly hear about that are now imposed upon men, by the establishment, then I might suggest that your standpoint is particularly weak. And I think Moran's here, unlike some of the progressive gatekeeping that is done to quash masculine discourse, I think she has made an earnest effort to speak from the position of sympathy towards the men in her life that she genuinely admires. But having no sons herself, having grown up as a feminist, having had a storied career as a feminist, being unable to think outside the feminist paradigm which has immiserated men emotionally, financially, socially, all of her prescriptions are more harmful than helpful. Yes. And I think she needs to listen to men on this particular issue. And when they say this book is kind of rubbish, even with the best of intentions. The, the, there's a way of summarizing this that could be her privilege is blinding her to what the actual solutions are. Hmm. And I really mean that as well. So. We'll begin by just examining the book step-by-step, uh, step, uh, beginning in the prologue, where she tells us about how she came to the revelation that actually maybe men do have problems. Uh, she says that in July 2014, she was at a panel, and uh, there were a thousand people in the room, and one lady stood up and said, well, have you got any advice for men? Uh, oh, sorry, it was a man who stood up. And uh, she was so blasé about this, she says, my advice to men, I guess please don't rape us and put the bowls in the dishwasher. It's like, okay very 2014 feminism. Um, and she says that she became massively irritated about men stomping all over a woman's thing when asked about, well, what, what, what about men? Uh, shouting, what about us? Well, what about you? She says at the time. Honestly, I don't care. Make your own things. Don't piggyback on ours. 
as in there were men saying, what can feminists do for men? And she's like, why would I care about that? The great irony, make your own things. Also, for our all-time place, culture and history, there has been a patriarchy you guys have corrupted, so it's now our time to enter the halls of power that you established. Yeah, make your own things, but I'm going to go live in a house that a man built and use a sewage system that a man constructed. And I'm going to tweet about feminism on an internet that a man invented and provided the infrastructure for, but go and make your own things. Um, but anyway, she, she changed her mind in 2019 because her teenage girls, as I say, she's a mother of two teenage girls, uh, are on a Zoom call and she's speaking to a class and the boys are speaking up about how it's difficult to be a boy. And there's the two strains that come out of this are a fear of a presumption of guilt when accused and random violence that they are experiencing. Um, but the girls uh, say to her afterwards, oh no, they're just being polite. They're way worse than that normally. Um, but she wonders why the mothers won't talk to each other. And she is concerned that the men have sorted themselves out with figures like Andrew Tate and Jordan Peterson, mm. which she views as basically moral equivalents. As I well. want to disentangle We will, those we later will get on. into that later. Um, but the problem is that the boys are pushing back against what feminism is doing to young men. Um, and, she, and she says, she, not the problem that they're suffering, the problem is that she is a feminist and she wants to defend feminism against these boys. And so she says, if men and boys really feel this, then I believe them. You have to believe people when they keep saying the same thing over and over more despairingly each time. And what's more, I think it's true. Straight white men are no longer encouraged to celebrate what they are. She doesn't believe them, though. This she doesn't is, believe them, no. This is, this is something that greatly irritates me. First of all, the girls that address the boys that are speaking about men's issues on International Women's Day... It's one, how dare you tread on our thing, and two, how dare you be so polite and reasonable when making your case while doing it? Mm. Because there is always the presumption that there is some sort of darker force lurking underneath the boys being appreciative that actually an older woman who seems to be in a position of power in this paradigm mm. has asked us what's ailing us. It, it, from, from their appreciation at her compassion and earnestness, it is presumed that they are subverting her. And then later on in the book, there is the, there's a discourse about these false rape accusations that boys bring up as a, as a chief concern in the prologue. Yeah. And immediately there is the presumption that, well, actually, based on all of these largely debunked inflated statistics taken from college campus self-surveys that say one in four women have experienced sexual assault and the conviction rate's really low and presumably it's because of institutional sexism. It's more likely your friends have actually just lied. So there is a, a seed of not just disbelief, but a kind of contempt laden in that disbelief yeah, she, for some of the things the boys say about the concerns they're facing. She also essentially just tells them to take it on the chin, Yeah, um, which is not brilliant. But anyway, moving on to chapter one, which is entitled How to Be a Boy. So when Caitlin was in school, she tells us about how one time she got kicked out of the girls' friend group in this school, but she was readily accepted by the boys to come and play football. Now, of course, she was useless about football, uh, so she just stood around near the goal, and the boys weren't nice to her, but very boyish about her because it was a, men, a male space, and they just acted like boys playing football because any boys watching this will know. Any, any men who are boys at one point, you'll know what boys are like when they're playing football. But then she realizes that she doesn't know anything about the inner lives of the boys. Mm. And so she asks herself, well, what is it like in the world of boys? And so she asks some of her male friends. And I can't help but feel 
that there is a kind of selection bias. They're not a representative sample. <laughs> not even in slightly. The slightest. So uh, she's got a bunch of male friends who are about 40 to sort of 55. And they give her answers they find to be true, but are also very weak and sort of soft left-wing answers. Gen uh, X, Islington, metrosexuals. Yeah, that's a great way of framing them. Um, I'm not, I'm Gen X, but I'm not an Islington metrosexual. Um, and so some of the answers they give are, well, football, even if you weren't into it, you just had to pretend, which is true. I wasn't really into football, but I still play football. Um, I wasn't any good at sports or anything involving hand-eye coordination, says Alex. Got contempt for that. I mean, like, I, I was never a fan of football, but I really enjoyed, like, tennis and badminton. You know, I had great yeah. hand-eye coordination. Um, uh, a Scottish guy was like, well, are you Celtic or Rangers? I was neither, so I got beaten up for being a ponce, says Stephen. I wasn't in Scotland. Uh, Even though I was rubbish at football, you needed kids like me to make up the number, says Pete. So again, you can see the self-selection bias on display. Like, you know, none of them enjoyed PE. I love PE. You know, PE was great because we weren't in the classroom, in my opinion. You know, I I was just thrilled to be out doing something like playing like uh, basketball or something. You know, Well, I was particularly rubbish at it because I was the small skinny kid. But in year 10, I ended up forging an alliance with a guy who's still my friend now the former fat kid who was the first one to start going to the gym about 15 <laughs> right, right. and so we were in the bottom set yeah but we were the best of the bottom set mm. we were like the highest iq of all the morons mm. and so whether we were on separate teams or the same team it was just totally unfair so he just ended up having to the pe teacher split us up into different games of about mm. threes in rugby for example and just stop us playing because we just trade tries or just get it every time right. so eventually even if you're not very good one you'll find that you're the best in a certain cohort two you'll probably find that you're better at something else you know the, mm. the, i took up powerlifting I, I enjoyed badminton even though i wasn't very good at it you might video games can be a time sink but your hand-eye coordination might be more suitable to that than yeah. something like football so don't just write off a domain of competency and act checked out like all the guys she consults in this yeah i mean i was i was just I'm, i've always been really competitive person mm. so it's like right now we're going to be go be competitive with one another it's like brilliant i'm going to i'm going to wreck everyone uh, so i enjoy sports um, but anyway she moves on uh, just to discuss the kind of way that boys interact and so she's like well look, being an alpha doesn't mean you need to be smart in fact being clever is irrelevant at some point you have to get into a fight because boys fight a lot which is obviously true uh, and there are rules to fighting obviously you don't slap you don't bite you don't spit you don't uh, try and get someone's crotch. Um, she's no idea about any of the rules of fighting, obviously, because she's a girl. But already you can see that she's describing something that is totally outside of her domain of experience or knowledge. This she is, doesn't know anything about this. This is part of my reason for using the term embodiment. Later on, hmm. near the end, I think it is, she starts saying about how all male anger comes from a place of sadness. No. Yeah, no, that's not true at all. Not even remotely. If, yeah. if you have never been under the influence of just a random surge of testosterone, you will yeah. never understand that you just have an urge to either hit or something. And and it's you're kind of in the throes of evolutionary biology at that point. Yeah. And not all male hyper-competitiveness or sadness comes from a place of insecurity. I think that's projection from her. But it's projection because she can't talk from any other standpoint other than being female. And she has absolutely no idea what it's like to be like a 13 or 14 year old boy who is having all of these hormones rushing through his body. Like I remember, right, there was this one time I was about 13 or 14, I was at school, and there was this kid called Gavin who had atrocious teeth. And we always used to tease him for having atrocious teeth, but he was a prick anyway. Yep. Um, 
And I was like kneeling down and unlocking my bike and he came up and like walloped me on the thigh with his with the flat of his foot. It didn't hurt, but it, I was just really pissed off about it. And so we, we had these concrete table tennis tables. I, I basically lost my rag. And like, I had him over this thing, I was choking him. I had loads of kids around me and I like kind of came to my senses mm. With me choking him and like everyone, and I, I you know, I let it go because I was just like, oh Christ, I, you know, I don't want to get in trouble or anything. But I don't really remember what happened between him kicking me mm. and me kind of coming to choking him, right? And it was that, that was when like my first real experience of like, you know, the rage, right? But it wasn't because I was sad or anything like mm. that. It was because he had attacked me. Yes. And he'd been antagonizing me all day. And I was just done with it, you know, I just wasn't having it. And, so yeah, it was it, nothing to do with being sad. It's just, honestly, it's, it's sort of... Lizard brain instinct. Yeah, but it's, it's the sort of domain of competitiveness mm. and domination that is built into being a man and is expressed in a kind of testosterone-fueled rage. But the egalitarian assumptions in this are also anathema to that hierarchical sorting mechanism. Well, yeah, now th this is something that Moran makes a big deal of saying, oh, there's no difference in men and women's brains. Oh, uh, there absolutely is. I know. She Or she says the differences are so are very small. It's like, yeah, but it's in that very small difference that all of the important stuff lays. But also it's just like the size of your amygdala is different. The yeah, association yeah. between left and right the, hemispheres is different. It's just But the point is, true. theoretically, she finds herself to be a biology denier. She's yeah. like, oh, no, no, I deny biological differences between men and women. But then all the way through the book, she has to essentially concede biological differences between men and women. And so it's remarkable how she can maintain this tension and contradiction throughout the entire thing. Because you'd think, like, okay, look, I, I, I want to believe the egalitarian science that says there's no difference between men and women, but there is lots of anti-egalitarian science that says there, is, there are differences. And I witnessed these differences and I've catalogued them in this book. Mm. You know, she's, she's definitely on this, like, you know, eroding cliff face where she keeps backing up and backing up. No, 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 there's no difference. There's no difference. Okay, but that's the difference, and that's the difference, and that's the difference. You can see her, like, shying away from the cliff edge. It's just that there is a difference, and it matters, uh, and she doesn't understand it, and that's what she's exploring. But anyway, so she talks about banter. She doesn't understand banter. <sighs> And it's really annoying that she doesn't understand banter. Actually, I, I, this this chapter deserves incarceration for well, this crimes against even, comedy. This, this is the first chapter. She talks about banter later as well, uh, but she in in uh, in her exploration of what it was like to be a young boy. Um, one, she's got a, a subtitle called Clowns Do Not Bleed, mm. which is, is actually quite a nice subtitle. But humour is a way of making friends, controlling a room, and securing one's place in the little tribe of the boys. That's true, right? That is definitely true. And so banter, according to her male friends, is a way of filling up space, taking up time, and avoiding emotional conversation. It's like, no, not really, right? Banter is a way of forming bonds and testing the character of the men you are around. Mm. That's what banter is for. It, it shows you that the other guy is, it, it's kind of like a handshake in a way, right? You offer out your hand in the form of a joke and how they respond to that tells you something about that man. It's the same with fighting, actually. Fighting yes. tells you a lot about the character of the other man. Is he going to fight dirty? Is he going to admit he's lost this one? Or when he beats you, is he going to be cruel and vindictive? You know, like, the again, these are things that the women just do not understand and her male friends being very effeminate themselves 
also don't understand. Their, their relative prosperity has insulated them from the risk-based reasons this evolved. So banter is a side-by-side bonding mechanism, whereas lots of women bond face-to-face. Yes. Men bond in engaging in a similar competitive activity. And to see if you're on the same page, you need hazing yeah. as a kind of litmus test for insecurity, because that insecurity will be a liability if we get into a hunt or a firefight. Yeah. Because if you bottle it while a boar is charging at me or someone's shooting at me, then I am going to die and our tribe is going mm. to be cost um, possibly its most prosperous hunter, defender, etc. And it's going to be so that a a slightly weaker man can feed himself and and stick around and stay alive. What you need is to shed your ego so that Mm. all the men and by virtue the women and children therefore benefit. And that's where it's downstream of. That classroom banter is young men playing into that instinct as they grow up. So this is the bond forming mechanism. But another thing about banter that she doesn't really understand is it's always uh, the ego shedding thing is an important part, I think, um, because what what it does, it's not positive, and it puts everyone on kind of a level playing field, right? So no, everyone's got something about them that they don't like. You know, everyone's got a nickname that is kind of derogatory, and you all have one. You know, and so kind of in a way, you're kind of all on the same level. You're all in the same group. There's there's a kind of and, and this is the kind of bond it puts. When you have a name in the group, then you are a part of the group. Mm. It's, a, it's a way of making belonging happen. Mm. You know, it's like, well, that guy, we don't have a nickname for that guy. Well, he's not part of our group then, is he? You know, when you come into the group, then you will get the nickname. You won't like it, but it'll be yours. And you will be confirmed in the, in the, in the thing that has been created when the group comes into existence. It's kind of fraternity. Yeah, it, yeah, it's fraternal. Yeah, that's a great way of putting it, right? Um, Anyway, so the next part of this chapter she goes on to is dark times. Young men are tormented and violent. It's like, well, yes, but they haven't always been tormented, although they have always been violent, mm. right? Um, a lot of the time in previous eras, you would have had something like scouts, which would have been male only, and so would have taken on a very male-oriented uh, character. And I mean, when I was young, girls went in scouts. I don't know whether it was because... Um, girls didn't want to, or they weren't allowed. Well, there was brownies and yeah, exactly. And they had girl, girl guides, guides and brownies, right? and then legislation made it so that they had right. to be sex neutral. Yeah. So when I was like, you know, twelve or thirteen in the early nineties, it was all boys, and so we did boy things. You know, we, we like we'd go on camping trips and like whittle sticks into spears, and then we'd like do night ambushes on one another where we'd beat each other up at night and stuff like that. It was great fun. But obviously, you wouldn't. The girls wouldn't want to be a part of that, right? But this meant we weren't frustrated and depressed because they didn't feel like there was an overarching power that was persecuting us for being male. You know, I grew up in a time when it was just normal to be a boy, and the men were like, "Oh yeah, well, this is what the boys do." You know, obviously, the girls won't want to come and do this, so the girls have girl guides. And I remember like picking my sister up from brownies, and they'd all be sat around in a circle just quietly talking, and I'd be like wow, that looks so phenomenally boring. That's exactly why I dropped out of scouts. So we had successive female scout leaders, mm. and I think this is a microcosm of exactly why that metrosexual non-representative sample class exists mm. that Moran spoke to, is the urbanization effect, the technological effect, mm. that wasn't as pressuring in the early 90s, I think, um, set into something like the scouts, which is meant to mm. cultivate woodland survival skills yeah. and accountability. Because a lot of what we did was sitting around in circles in a church hall or something, 
playing tag, but you weren't allowed to push anyone over, sitting in front of computers, doing research, walking up to local high street and counting traffic for a badge. And I was like, I, I just, I want to be building forts and fighting things. Yeah. And I'm not. Yeah. So why am I here on a Tuesday night after school when I'm it, tired? Yeah. I mean, when I, when I was in Scouts, like you'd stand to attention. Like you, you, all the boys would stand in rows, not just sitting around in a circle. Mm. Like I just couldn't, you know, I was, you know, 13 or whatever. I didn't understand the difference, but I was just so glad I wasn't doing what they were doing. But, um, but the, the point being, she recognizes that things are not right for young men now. You know, they used to be right when young men could have men's spaces, male spaces, and they could behave in the way that it comes naturally to them. Um, and so she asks, you know, well, why is life so difficult? If young men had structure and order and purpose, then they'd be very happy. And yes, but that means that they would have to have a space away from women in which women had no hand. And feminism obviously can't broach that. Because if that happens, well, that's how patriarchy grows up. Mm. It's like, yes, because patriarchy is good. Um, and of course, she thinks that, well, it's no wonder then, since feminism has destroyed all of the spaces for men, destroyed everything about being a man that is noble or noteworthy, that someone like Andrew Tate can come along 15-year-olds and go, actually, being a man's brilliant, guys. Come and join me. It's no wonder Andrew Tate is popular, and this obviously scares her. It's like, oh no, why have we allowed this monster to grow up? It's like, because you destroyed all of the wholesome masculine structures that made men into good people and said, we're going to replace it with nothing. Become a woman. If the parents haven't passed anything down than a Pied Piper figure, it is much easier for them to lead the children astray. I would love to know what percentage of Andrew Tate's audience are fatherless. I would estimate quite a large proportion, especially given, as, as she does document in here accurately, mm his own dad was not the best to him either, despite yeah. being a very competent Champion and accomplished player, man. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so she asks the men she knows about girls. Girls to young men seem very magical and uh, impressive, which is true as a young man. Girls, because you don't understand the hormones raging through you when you're like 14 or 15 anyway. The world is different. You're noticing different things about women. And then they can accentuate these things. They can wear perfume, which is intoxicating. They wear makeup. They can wear low-cut tops. You don't understand. Your body is changing as well. And so you've got things happening to you. You don't understand. It is a very confusing time. And to say, well, the girls have no restraints and the boys just have to learn how this is done on their own now is a very tough thing to do. Have you seen the producer in your bit of how modern workplaces are unfair because it's trying to get bears to work with salmon covered in honey? Yeah, and yeah, the, that's kind of what it is. If yeah. the bear walks past the cubicle and, and growls a little bit, the salmon just go, ah, help, human resources. But it's yeah. like, well, you're, you're putting two antithetical animals in, in yeah. the same space together and demanding the more aggressive one to constrain himself. Yeah. And she notices that access to adulthood comes earlier for girls than for boys. Um, or the, sorry, this is what the <clears throat> the men she interviews are and notices. And that's totally true. Um, because the men, are they feel totally bewitched and befuddled by women, which is totally true. Every young boy goes through this. Um, and so this is a very true obs observation about the power dynamics between teenage boys and girls. It's absolutely true that the girls feel more social power than the boys. Because, of course, a, a man's social power comes with his status. And as a teenage boy, you don't have any status. Well, the status you have is very, very low among a very low group of people. Um, so, uh, and, and like girls have, say, the girls could blossom 
So a girl who is average at school could suddenly turn up to the school disco in hot pants, hair and makeup. You'd be like, oh my God, that's Alison McGovern. There's no equivalent of that for boys, like a sudden makeover like Sandy in Greece. Uh, so in that way, it's easier to be a girl. And that's true. There is no sort of rite of passage and impressive regalia that a young man gets to wear. I mean, it used to be maybe that they could like, you know, join the army or something. Then they'd have their uniform. And so they could turn up in a fancy uniform, standing straight, looking respectable, maybe. Uh, in previous series, there probably were things like that, but there isn't in the modern world. There's a little bit in that it is, it takes a lot longer than just a makeover and showing up to the school disco for guys to put themselves together. But if you are the scorny kid or the fat kid, and, and without sounding arrogant, I've actually experienced this a little bit, and you get in decent shape and you ascend to at least one of the top of the domains of competence. It's not that you're necessarily the captain of the football team, for example, getting mm. a cheerleader. But if you, and then you enter a new environment, um, like a university campus, yeah. there are a cohort of women that will immediately make themselves known to you. You will have yeah. a sort of gravitational orbit. The problem comes from the kind of resentment you can cultivate with that, mm -hmm. I've noticed that there are quite a few men that become embittered when they feel that they were at that bottom of the social hierarchy because there weren't many avenues accessible to them as a teenage boy. Yeah. They get to their early 20s, they're making a bit more money and they're better looking, and suddenly now all these girls pay me attention? Yeah. Oh, where were you before when I was the same guy? I think they're resenting basically female biology as much as a lot of the feminists represent men, mm -hmm. but there are narrower avenues, but there are still some. But they're not common, I would say. Mm. <clears throat> and uh, and I think that having a kind of formalized structure, because like the the grow the becoming a young woman is a kind of formalized structure for women. You know, they teach each other how to wear makeup, what clothes to wear, what perfumes to wear, and how to kind of carry themselves mm. in order to impress young men. And men don't have anything like that, which is a shame. You know, they should. It, it used to be like when a man got his first suit, you know, when he was like eighteen or something then that would be the base, the equivalent of the kind of glow-up, the best you could get. The old, we well, actually, the best you could get. I'm glad you said that. The old, one of the old participation rituals, your dad teaching you to shave for the first yeah. time. And then look at the Gillette ads, the difference between the 80s yeah, and the aspiration yeah. there to now a dad teaching his trans daughter to shave. Yeah. So basically, young men have been stripped of rites of passage and entry into manhood, which is not good. And honestly, I think should be kind of formally instituted among young men these days by fathers, which I will do with my sons. Um, but she asked the boys if they wanted to be girls and they all say no. Even the metrosexuals are like, well, no, I, mean, I might be the worst of men, but I don't want to be a girl, which I find interesting. Um, and then she, she worries that men are cut off from their emotions. It's like, no, we just process emotions in a very different way to you. Um, you won't understand it, but we'll get into that later. Uh, and she notices how no one ever tells you how to be a man, whereas women are bombarded with advice on how to be women all the time, which is why young women are capable of these sort of glow-ups uh, that young men aren't. Uh, but then she realises that men never imbibe any media about normal teenage boys. It's like... Right. Yeah? I really hated this bit. Go on, why? Okay, so she uses Adrian Mole, and then she has the self-awareness. To say it's written by a woman, exactly. The way that men and women consume media is very different. Yeah. Um, I was actually, I, I put out a lengthy tweet thread upon finishing this book, and this was the element that actually my friend Mary Harrington picked out saying, 
even I never recognise this as someone that's quite big on sex realism. It's that women often see, and you see this in psychological studies where girls are playing with dolls as well, mm. they see themselves reflected and projected onto the thing that they're playing, mm. reading, watching. That's why when lots of comic books and fandoms have been taken over by progressive female writers, you get self-inserts yeah. all the time. That's why all of young adult fiction have blank slate characters. I think Katniss Everdeen from The Hunger Games or... Yeah. Bella from Twilight, whereas men see aspirational figures. Yeah. They see heroes to ascend to. And she writes in here about all of these Marvel superheroes, the person that she had dinner with, I'm presuming is James Gunn, probably, um, saying that all these guys are going through rigorous training routines and they're, they're yeah, we'll, we'll starving that, themselves yeah. and just, to, just to look majestic. It's, yes, it's not causing widespread body dysphoria in boys. In fact, that high bar... There is nobility in falling even short of that high bar mm. because you are pursuing a higher ideal that keeps you accountable, going back to the responsibilities you have to your tribe. You need mm. to be in the best shape so that you can bear burdens other people can't bear. And so that's why men need things to look up to in their fiction. Mm. Just seeing daily life reflected back at us. Well, we actually have things that we can't... That we, we've got things to do, so we can't just sit around wallowing in feelings. We need to be better in order to provide for you. But also, why would I want it? That is my daily life. Like I do that every day. Why would I want to read a book about what I do every day? You know, and then you, I think you are right. The, the women try to impose themselves on the fiction, whereas men try to live within the fiction and change themselves to match it. Um, and I think that's exactly right, which is why she says, you know, well, the young men were reading stories about quests and intergalactic battles and superpowers and adventures and mysteries. Uh, real stories were big. Normal boys' lives were little, no matter what actually happened to them. It's like, yeah, because most of these people would have had very safe middle-class lives where nothing in particular happened that was very notable. And so they are thinking, right, okay, one day I have to move into the mold of the conqueror or whatever it is, you know, the hero. And the women have a totally different approach to this. So it's like, well, okay, I'm, I'm going to make this character do what I do on a daily basis. So, like, okay, this tells us a lot about the biological differences between men and women. They're just fundamentally different at almost every level. But of course, she refuses to admit this. And also the social dynamics, because the fact that men start off from a place of, of relative safety being parented, mm. need to dislocate themselves from that family unit because it starts stifling their potential. This is where you get the Oedipal yep. model idea. And accumulate strength and status in order to have their own family. Because men go through that Luke Skywalker-style journey, mm. that's why women can have the safe parameters in which to value affirmation and um, self self-image and things like that upper upper run of Maslow's hierarchy of needs because they're not scrounging for bare subsistence. Mm. You can only afford the space, place, and time to focus on yourself and your feelings if you're not scrounging for survival. That's because men are doing that hard physical work because we're biologically best equipped to do that. And if I might do, we're best equipped. We're designed to do it. Exactly. If I might do one mini nitpick as well about her framework for writing this, I know it's steeped a lot in irony and sardonics, and yeah, she it's very Generation X. Make a lot of references. Problem is, and this also might be why she can't relate to male media. I don't think she actually read or watched anything she referenced, because she references some guy says about new gods in here. Again, I own that. I've read it. She, I'm just going to assume she hasn't read Jack Kirby's comics. References Fast and Furious and doesn't get the lines right. Again, might well be a joke. But then she references Star Wars multiple times. And she keeps saying Darth Vader, not only does she misquote him, built three Death Stars. He didn't, too. But she keeps hamming on that joke. She, she tries to imply that Star Wars is a story about bad fatherhood as well. It's like, that's not really what it is. 
Like Luke Skywalker has no idea Darth Vader is his father until like the end of the second film. Yes. You know, so it's not that, you know, Luke Skywalker has actually quite a decent family, adopted family that are very normal, like you know, very kind. You know, that's what makes Luke actually a very relatable character is that the average person comes from a, a happy two-parent two family. And so now he becomes the sort of relatable center that goes out into the galaxy and experiences terrible things. You know, that's why the Darth Vader being like, I am your father is such a twist. Like, well, no, no, why would I think that, you know? But anyway, she, yeah, I, I, if she read them, she didn't understand them. Yeah. But, um, but the point being after, and again, we're still only in chapter one, but the other chapters are not this interesting. Um, after it, asking all of the men around her what it is like to be a boy and then a man, she says that this is all totally alien to her. And she actually says, I felt like I'd just interviewed a bunch of centaurs about their centaur lives, which I actually really like this line because... I think that a person who was trying to find a nice way of saying this, a person who's genuinely introspective would come away and go, right, I don't understand anything about these things. This is so totally alien to me that I feel like I'm interviewing centaurs. Is this a moment of self-reflection for me as a feminist, since I have spent my entire professional career attacking something I didn't understand? There is, of course, no introspection throughout this entire book uh, or critique of feminism or anything like that. The thing is, women are actually very capable of that because in oh, this yeah. very chair, I brought Nina Power in to talk about her book, What yeah. About Men, which, uh, not What About Men, um, What Do Men Want, sorry. Yeah. That's this one. Um, yeah. So she was harping on the Freudian line because she said, I would never be presumptive enough to actually be able to answer that question. I just asked uh, an aggregate of my male friends consulted the entire history of writing on masculinity to see if they could come up with an answer. She basically landed with um, fathers' meaningful relationships and being in position of mentorship over other men, and women should allow them to get on with it without perennially henpecking them. Yeah, when well, this that's... does read like henpecking at times. To watch the full video, please become a premium member at lotuseaters.com.